Welcome to the Better Birth Podcast. My name's Erin and I'm a hypnobirthing and antenatal instructor, birth activist and all-round birth geek. In this podcast, I chat to experts in the field of pregnancy and birth, debunking myths around birth, diving into the research around maternity care and exploring what is it that means you're more likely to have a positive birthing experience. If you enjoy this podcast, do feel free to buy me a coffee and fund my caffeine habit. Link to my buy me a coffee page is in the podcast info. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Better Birth podcast. Today I have the privilege of speaking to the very wonderful Dr. Claire Feely, who is a midwife and researcher. She works at King's College London on research as well as collaborating with numerous other organisations. And her research covers a wide range of topics such as physiological birth, water immersion, advocacy and change implementation. She's also the former editor-in-chief of the Practicing Midwife Journal. So today we're going to be talking about her new book, which is out soon on supporting physiological birth choices in midwifery practice, which is something that I am very personally passionate about. Um, So welcome, Claire. Thank you so much for having me, Erin. I'm really excited to be here and talk about all my research. Fantastic. Did I miss any of your roles? Because I know you've you've done lots and lots of things. Uh, oh, minor ones, do a bit of consultancy around this issue of personalised care and work with trust sometimes to help their midwives uh, support women better um, with their birth choices. So, yeah, that's probably something else I do right now. And it's I think it is something which I think midwives find quite challenging. I know it's an area of focus that um, some some trusts do have on trying to um, ensure that midwives feel more comfortable with supporting birth outside of guidelines. Um, so I am really interested to hear about about your book and, and your research, because I think it is something that both midwives find challenging. And I think pregnant people find really challenging in, in having those discussions and achieving the birth that they want and dis- deserve. So do you want to talk about a little bit about why you why you wrote the book and why you focused on this topic? Yeah, great question. So this book comes from my PhD research. So that's a few years ago now, but so I've been invested in this area, both as a clinical midwife throughout my whole career. And then that led me to my PhD. But I think the what's interesting and helpful to know why I chose this particular topic for the PhD came from my master's research, where I had the privilege of speaking to women who had chosen, who adopted to free birth. And for me, my background question in my mind was, what does that say about maternity services? What what needs are they not meeting? So that was, um, you know, a reasonably sized study, considering at the time it was quite um, a minority decision. And what I found from speaking to those women and birthing people was for a good proportion of them that had a very traumatic first hospital birth and in a bid to reclaim their power, they wanted a home birth a second time. But unfortunately, they ended up interacting with quite obstructive community midwives because now they have these risk factors. And and you can't see me um, if you're listening to this, but I'll put risk always in quotation air marks um, because it's such a wide contentious area. So, and for me, that really stood out. So that forced them into making the decision. To me, that's our responsibility as maternity services, actually. There's lots of women and birthing people making that decision from a really positive, um, empowered space, and they know it's just right for them. So that's fine. You know, hopefully the maternity services will not be coercive and obstructive and just support and keep the communication lines open should there be any need for, you know, interaction or help. But for that subset of women, and quite frankly, I think that's in the majority, and especially all the other free birthing research that's come out since then, that to me is a key area. And some of the the so-called risk factors of these women, quite frankly, from my clinical perspective at the time, it didn't feel like a big deal. It was like, well, you know, someone with previously high blood pressure but didn't have blood pressure this time around. So, okay, so let's not 
expect that to happen. Let's just support and screen and see what, you know. So, and at the time being clinical as well, um, it was very much part of my practice to try and deliver the care that women wanted. And I was in touch with midwives, uh, not just in this country, but all over the world by that point. That's the, the upside to social media at the time. And I knew there were midwives confident and competent and enabled by their work environment to deliver so-called outside of guidelines care or supporting women and birthing people with these uh, so-called risk factors. Um, so I, from that free birthing research, I really could have gone down a much uh, more birth trauma route in terms of research, because um, obviously it's huge and so, so important. But for me, I felt really strongly I wanted to learn uh, from people who were doing it, who were doing it well and who were providing the supportive care that people that, you know, birthing people were asking for. So I switched. So something that we call in the research world, a salutogenic approach. So what's working well? How, what can we learn from the ones who are doing it and delivering that care? And so that led me to the PhD, but specifically NHS midwives because working as an NHS midwife, we have very particular constraints and tensions within our practice, which will be very familiar to anyone who's listening here. So how did they mitigate and how did they work around or work within this quite rigid system um, and still deliver the care that birthing women and people were, were asking for? I don't know what more you want me to say at this point on that one. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm interested to hear what you what you have to say. So, yeah. So what I did was, and it was really topical at the time when I finally got out to recruitment. Um, there were new issues with independent midwives insurance because uh, it was back in 2017. Mm. Francis' report had come out. Supervision was changing, so midwifery and maternity services was really in the public eye and. Um, the midwifery circles were, you know, very engaged with what was going on. So I had an enormous amount of response to my recruitment adverts. But specifically, I asked midwives to come forward if supporting birthing women and people with out of guidelines physiological birth was in their regular practice. Because what I really was trying to do is get really close to um, the ones who are doing it and comfortable, confident, confident, and what I call they self-defined as willingly facilitative mm -hmm. to deliver this sort of care. So I ended up with 45 midwives in the study, which if I'm across the country, which was really important to me. I didn't, I wanted to move away from localized cultures because each hospital, each unit, even within the same trust, has a different culture. Yeah. Some things are completely acceptable over here, and some are, you know, outrageously not acceptable somewhere else you know next door even so and it's a big sample size for qualitative research and again you know at the time the advice was well you could you know have a lot a lot less but I had a not say no policy I wanted to hear as many stories with as many examples as I possibly could and because I kept my question and interviews quite general, I, I wasn't looking at a specific type of out of guideline birth choice, like say VBAC at home or uh, breach in the birth center. I wanted midwives to tell me anything that was meaningful, topical, uh, maybe a big case to them or situation. So when I plotted out the range of out of guidelines and you can see it in my papers, I mean, hundreds, of different types and they were from what I'd say a tiny nudge outside of guidelines perhaps someone declining prophylactic antibiotics for a SROM or um, GBS even and to a giant, giant leap of complexity so you know for example a woman in her second pregnancy having previously had a preterm birth with uh, pregnancy induced hypertension now, and actually had a very traumatic time, now coming to this pregnancy with twins, wanting a home water birth. So that's quite a leap. Mm -hmm. So just to you know set that scene of the variation, and you know some were, as far as I was concerned, reasonably straightforward, supporting someone with a raised BMI to use a pool or birth center at home. 
um, to these much more complex cases where there's multiple medical and obstetric factors um, that would make that woman's situation complex. And I think that was really important to be able to gather such a wide variety of data with these different birth choices. Because what I really want to do is, well, what can we learn that would uh, embed genuine personalized care for everyone? So whatever that is, I mean, all of this work is transferable across mm -hmm. any uh, conversation from antenatal screening to you know, birth choices and postnatal care. And I couldn't control this, but the, what happened was with the 45 midwives, what was really important was the fact that they were across the bands. I had very junior midwives from band fives, only just qualified all the way up to um, midwives who had been working for 30 years. And all across the service, I didn't want this to be, um, you know, home birth versus hospital birth, community versus hospital kind of study. And again, I couldn't control that, but I was just really lucky to have those different participants in. And they also worked, so it worked all across the service and in different roles. So I had labor ward coordinators, two rotational midwives, two home birth leads, you know, team leaders and consultant midwives. So I think that cross-section really uh, strengthened those overall findings. So that was my whole PhD work, which was then has led to this book, which is, has got a very particular focus from the PhD findings because I'm actually writing another one based on which is going to be more for clinical midwives so this is really around those sociological issues um, sociological political issues that played out in the midwives ability or hindering the midwives ability to deliver this care even though they they wanted to so very much the you know the topical things at the moment the, those cultural constraints those political constraints and by culture, I mean um, where we're working, what people find acceptable or not acceptable, the way things are done around here type thing. Um, and because from my PhD, it was a lot of participants, but I asked three questions and did three different analyses. So I could really understand how the midwives delivered that care, how they built those relationships, how they built trust and um, so I stripped out all this context of where they worked and how they experienced delivering that care to get to that nuts and bolts. What can we learn as midwives and obstetricians about delivering that sort of care? But then in my second analysis, I was like, what was it like for those midwives? And actually, um, and I use something called the lens of emotionality, because what stood out to me was this deep, deep emotions related to the work that they did. These midwives were strongly committed, passionate, had strong beliefs, um, values around maternal autonomy. And that emotion and how invested they were in the work that they do stood out. So when I started unpacking that and looking at it through what their emotional stories were, then I found this really polarised sense of uh, experience. So across this 45 midwives, it, all, it was almost 50-50, extremely negative experiences and a heartbreaking, distressing accounts of ostracization in their workplace, bullying, uh, spurious referrals to the NMC, all the way to these amazing, uh, awe-inspiring stories of fulfillment. Mm -hmm. because and when you looked at that again, it was the workplace which mediated whether someone had a dreadful time supporting birthing women and people in their care or an amazing time and how fulfilling that could be. If I'm honest, I expected all the negative stuff. I was waiting for that. I wasn't expecting such a broad uh, polarisation and broad spectrum, I suppose is a better word. And to have almost 50-50 in the participants of actually being able to get on with their job. They worked within uh, trust, trust that valued and supported midwives autonomy to do the job that they are qualified to do and women's autonomy. So this whole idea of out of guidelines for those working in these positive cultures was a bit of a shrug of the shoulder. Yeah, we do it all the time. Yeah, oh yeah, we might have to, you know, 
uh, fill in a pro forma or something, but it's really casual. It's just really straightforward. Some might have a more structured approach with um, offering uh, consultant midwife appointments. But again, if the women declined, it was, you know, it's just all this kind of casual top down, bottom up. And that's where that um, my fascination with the culture is, is that was permeated across the organisation. It wasn't down just to one team leader or one team, you know, the home birth team or something or a particular obstetrician, because we all know that when we're supporting women in the community you know different hospitals like that if you speak to them you know you'll get what you need uh, but don't go to them so that's what really characterized the midwives um, in that positive end of the study and then what I did with that all of that information is reanalyze that to think about how the social cultural political factors of their workplace influenced and impacted their ability to deliver this care and that's when I created this um, theoretical model and used the rich, really rich sociological literature around stigmatization to unpack those really negative and explain those negative experiences how these midwives were you know they were too different within the, the local culture they were this us and them this group uh, disparity the midwives stood out far too much. So they were ended up in this, you know, labelled as deviant, challenged. And then, you know, the extreme end of that was full on stigmatisation, referred to as the bad, dangerous midwives, um, that they were persuading women to make these choices. And that's a really dangerous place for midwives to be. Yeah. So using that stigmatisation, uh, literature helped me map out but again what's great is that that goes all the way through the six uh, domains of that model which is all in the book all the way through to what I've called normalized practice now I don't mean normal in the terms of normal birth but this normalized practice was um, midwives and birthing women and people's autonomy was respected um, and this whole idea of outer guidelines was just not a big deal it was personalized care it was like I say permeated across the organization with a couple of interesting nuances in between that there were some midwives who did stand out in their team and I've called them optimal deviants so it's a bit of a play on words they did stand out their practice was very different to their localized culture but they didn't harness the same threat to their colleagues mm -hmm. and in fact they were deemed as helpful because so, say some of their, their colleagues didn't want to look after these women. Oh, one of those, you know, quite dismissive, derogatory. So they found the midwife in my study useful, beneficial. Oh, she's one for you. And I was saying that she's one for you. You go look after the woman who wants a feedback but doesn't want a CTG. Mm -hmm. So their difference didn't make them deviants. Their difference was seen as a benefit to their organisation. So that's just a couple of the examples. Like I said, the six domains, that's that's all in the book. And that was the purpose of this book was to really go deeply into these sociological aspects of the care. So, you know, you'll see in chapter two, a real unpacking of that interweaving of the medicalization, institutionalization, risk discourse, standardization, governance, um, et cetera, et cetera, and how we've kind of got to the situation where physiological birth in of itself is contentious and deemed dangerous and risky, and then put an out of guidelines lens on that, that well, quite frankly, culturally, it seems quite deviant. So that really unpacks, and hopefully it's accessible for people who don't read sociological literature because some of it is really dense and it's, it's quite hard to follow. So I'm hoping that that is something that we can all make, make sense of. And that's before I lead into the, the findings and, and drawing upon other sociological literature, um, things around psychological safety um, to explain how those midwives either weren't in psychologically safe environments or how they were and what difference that made. I'm so excited to read this book <laughs> honestly I could listen to you all day it, it's I mean I, I really hope that um, universities buy copies of this and give it to their students because um, 
I hear it all the time because I, I guest lecture at, at various different universities to student midwives. And, and the things that I'm talking about is supporting physiology and supporting autonomy, obviously with a hypnobirthing lens on it. Um, but it is it is something that I, I hear quite often that students find it very difficult as a student to be able to support physiology and choice and autonomy. Um, and then they're going into, like you said, a system and a, an organization where the culture possibly doesn't promote and support the midwives to support the birthing person. Um, and I really hope that, that the midwives read this as well, because, you know, like you said, it's it's across the board. It is, you know, across all levels of seniority. And, you know, it is it is something that, that's national and an issue. And I hear I hear it all the time from midwives who will message me you know, after seeing a post that I've put up on Instagram. Um, and it's heartbreaking because we're losing midwives and, and the ones we are losing are the ones that probably would be participating in your, would have participated in your study. It's those people who are passionate about supporting autonomy and supporting birthing people and women to birth outside of guidelines. Um, and they are, they are, you know, they are they're, they're they're made to to feel like they are you know the the problem black sheep midwife in the organization um or they feel really bullied um or they're just scared of you know being reported and and losing their pin because they are trying to support i mean some of the stories i've had from people you know midwives who one 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 midwife messaged me and said that she um i think i think uh she was running antenatal clinics and um the numbers of people who were opting out of various different things um was was higher in her in her you know her caseload than than other midwives and therefore she was investigated um and all she was doing was supporting autonomy and probably proactively offering information to say well this is a choice and you don't have to do something and here's the alternatives which is what everyone should be doing but then she was victimized for it um so you probably saw a lot of that when you were doing your study yeah exactly that for the ones who um were in these negative environments that perception that midwives are persuading and they stand out if they are not um you know, looking a bit different to their colleagues' statistics and things. And there's some really rich quotes um, in the book in chapter four about that. And just that perception of that those midwives must be doing something wrong for their women to not comply, which mm -hmm. like we know is the absolute antithesis of our legal frameworks, actually. Mm -hmm. That's the bit that I think it, you know, and I thread it through my education and when I'm supporting midwives and, NH and obstetricians, you know, I talk to obstetricians as well. The legal framework is on the side of the birthing person. And, and it is if, you know, we can dig into Montgomery and things like that. And I think one, what was really telling was one of the midwives in the study said, my, because she worked in a negative environment, unsupportive environment, she said, my colleagues only notice when a woman declines something. That seems obvious to them to accept, right? They don't notice when I look after someone who wants an epidural, who does want um, active third stage and all of those things. They don't notice that I'm leaving it up to women to make their own decisions. And some will choose, you know, the, the typical pathway, if you like, you know, accept the induction, um, you know, all of that kind of thing. But they only notice when women decline. And I thought that was fascinating. It kind of sums up exactly what you're, you're saying there. Mm. Um, so it is a really, really challenging space. But if, and we, it does, you know, it, it's a very heated space. But we have support from policy. The maternity transformation plan, you know, well, since the 1990s, and I know people are sick of hearing about it, but from changing childbirth on, our policy is some of the best in the world. And I know that doesn't make so much of a difference sometimes on the everyday. But I am speaking to trusts who are really engaging with this from a senior level and are asking the questions because some of the pushback is from the midwives on the ground. 
So, and that also came up in my study. So the ones who were in leadership positions would talk about how they were trying to change the culture, embed more maternal autonomy into the culture across the board. So maybe they were consultant midwives, but their pushback came from the community midwives, perhaps, or the ones delivering the care. And the clear message from them was, it's my pin. The fear around losing their pin was because they're the ones doing the hands-on care for want of a better word. So, so that comes back to culture again. If you're in a blame culture and you're looking to hang one person out to dry, then absolutely you're in a really, really vulnerable position. But I think I am inspired with the amount of leaders who are taking on board and trying to bridge that, you know, trying to support midwives better to support the birthing people. Um, and that's really where we have to go. And that's basically, you know, the solution lens I have in the final chapter of this book. We cannot have the situation where there is a burden of responsibility for an individual birthing person's choice on one midwife. Yeah. It is a group effort. It's a team effort. It's a cultural effort. It's an organisational mandate, actually, from policy and our legal frameworks. And that's the bit, I suppose, and you can probably start to hear in my voice now where I get um frustrated we have the best legislation probably one of the best in the entire world and we're seeing abuses of it every single day and the fact that colleague that you mentioned came you know was investigated because people were making their own their own decisions about the care they wanted to opt into or opt out of um is, is hugely problematic and against the legal framework so I suppose um, my advice in that situation and in those broader situations, I think Birthrights is an amazing organisation. They came, they came into being just as I qualified or maybe a year after and finally gave the language to what I knew, the technical language to what I've been trying to advocate as a student, as a newly qualified uh, midwife, um, but probably wasn't articulate enough in those negotiating conversations or advocacy conversations and birthrights came along and just like ah oh, that's absolutely brilliant I find that often people aren't aware of the legal frameworks and it's the biggest tool we've got in our box that supports us in our practice to support those in our care it's a powerful tool but it's underutilized um so I, if there's nothing else, and, you know, there are some decisions that are going to rest heavily, more heavily on us as practitioners than others. And that's fine. That's normal to perhaps have more worry. Maybe something's out of your comfort zone. You know, for me, I've got no breach birth experience. So I would not be the right person. And, you know, it would be unethical for me to say, yeah, I'll support you no matter what. No, no, no. I need to get in the experts to help me to help support someone. So that would be one example. But the legal frameworks, and even when we're feeling uneasy about someone's decision, I will literally go back to right my values. What do I value more than anything? And that's women and birthing people's autonomy over their bodies. That's my fundamental value. I will not deviate from whether that's an elective section or you know a home birth with twins. And then I'll just talk myself through, you know, the different articles, go back to the guidebooks and the practitioner books, and I can happily send the links for the practitioners who haven't seen those yet, because they're, they're, they're really thorough. Um, and just sort of go, okay, this is my, and you've got to own your own feelings. This is my anxiety. It's not my life. It's not my baby. It's not my decision. But it is a process sometimes, you know, when I was clinical, I've been clinical for a little while, that I would have to talk myself through and detach and go, no, no, this, this, I'm separate. This isn't my, my life. I don't have to live with the consequences either way. Because if someone's bullied into care they don't want, the far-reaching consequences of that are enormous. And I've looked after those birthing women and people. I've, you know, researched with those people, you know, so I think that it takes perhaps what's underestimated and I won't talk too much about it, but it is the subject of my second book is the, the deep self-awareness and emotional intelligence we need working within maternity services. I think it's underrated, underemphasized, 
not facilitated very well at all from an educate from education you know i'm an educator so i can say i can be i can be critical we don't have time <laughs> as a rule we've got so much in those programs um and we're dealing with humans humans and the messy world of existing in this world and there are triggers there are things that are more uncomfortable and unless we have create the space to understand those then we are advising when we should be actually in more of a counseling space giving unbiased information um we can go into knee-jerk reactions and all that kind of thing if we're not in tune with how we feel about certain things we may hold and the other thing is we all hold very strong opinions we know what we might do if we were pregnant you know think about antenatal screening for downs that can be such a hot topic some people would be like well why on earth wouldn't you do it and other people are like why on earth would you do it you know really polarized you us as midwives and obstetricians and any healthcare workers it's fine to know what you would do but you're speaking to someone who isn't you Mm -hmm. You have to detach from that and you're entitled to your opinion but what you're not entitled to do is push that opinion on someone else Mm -hmm. and I think but that is all for me that's emotional intelligence um, which is really hard to be consistent when you have got 20 women in the clinic or you've you've got 10 postnatal visits but you live in a rural area and it's going to take you god knows how long to go see all those people so i don't want to speak about this like it's simple um but i think that is an area that we need to address and that goes across the organization as well because you know linking it back to this particular book those midwives in those unsupportive environments you know, you could say that they're all in this knee-jerk, fearful. Where is that fear coming from? If we just look at VBAC statistics, you know, 99.5% of women are not going to have a rupture. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's amazing. It's brilliant. But we talk about it like someone's a catastrophe waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we are in an interesting situation of we're overblowing some so-called risks but we are under invested in the real risks that that are out there you know so I think we're in this very interesting conflicting and contradictory space um you know to me some some of these mandates are illogical um yeah I'm gonna leave it there yeah I honestly I do feel like this is such an important transformational topic like the the things that you're covering and the things that you're talking about you know supporting from a top down and changing you know changing culture and changing um approach organizationally from the top down which is very I think is very hard um and I and it 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 honestly makes my heart happy to know that you are already working with trust to do this from an from an organizational level because it's never going to happen unless unless we get the top down um it's it's also i shouldn't um, it's not surprising but it's um it's eye-opening to hear that you know from from the bottom up there's resistance as well which i guess isn't surprising um but again you know anybody that reads that that book is going to is going to be able to I, I assume kind of really analyze and sit with those approaches and those feelings and those challenges that they're facing and be able to address them um and then we're kind of you're so you're almost kind of going from both angles from a top down and a, from a bottom up um and and quite frankly, if there's people that are already working in organisations and trust that are doing this well and feeling supported, then you've got to ask the question, why are we not doing it everywhere? Because it is possible because there are trusts and there are hospitals that are doing it successfully. So we need to be cloning what their approach is and then copying it across the whole UK because it is possible. Um, but I guess behaviours are very difficult to break and change. Um and admitting, I think, 
that perhaps we have our own prejudices and and you know analyzing and sitting with the fears and anxieties that we have is very very hard um so I'm really hoping that the, your book is going to be an instigator for, for change um and that it does get shared widely um and it, it, it does you know fire up some some change because you and I both know that we are we are heading for a car crash in maternity care because we are hemorrhaging midwives and this is the crux of it isn't it you know the fact that we are losing so many midwives because of the system because of the policies because of being unsupported and obviously you know the whole politics of they're not paid properly they're not valued properly um so I'm genuinely speaking heartfelt genuinely feel like very passionately that what you've done the research you've done is so crucial and so important because if we can implement those changes we can potentially save midwifery and and that's going to have a huge impact you know nationally on the people giving birth now and in the future um I can't express how how you know how happy I am to hear you talk about your research and um, and that you've put this book out because I think it's really really important I think what you've just said there for me, I suppose, is like the final or, or the key message by researching what has been achieved within the NHS tells us what can be in the future. So exactly that, you know, some of the uh, situations or complexities, you know, for some people it's going to be so far out of their comfort zone, they, you know, and their, their knee jerk reaction might be they allowed her to do what? <laughs> Um, but like say sit with that and go oh my goodness okay where are my fears coming from there and I would suggest that most of the fears circle back to being blamed for something going wrong yeah so rather than necessarily even thinking that you know if you separate yourself from that decision is that even a terrible thing actually I think it all circles back to the what if what Mm -hmm. if I get blamed for this and you know the majority of midwives are women a good proportion of them have family they might be the only you know source of income for their family so you know it's really challenging and I understand what I'm asking of midwives sometimes might be feel really really challenging which is why the whole point of this book so it's not down to you we all have a responsibility to play so for anyone who doesn't know the legal framework inside out well that's your job right you need to know that um but yes we absolutely have to tackle this from an organizational level um one of and you can find it on my website one of the other models i created which was more practically focused rather than sociologically theoretically what something called the asset model and it's free to download you can have a look at it and basically what i did was after all of that work was like well what do midwives need from these findings to deliver this care and it's from the individual level to, but then it moves down into um, systems level. And one of those things, dare I say, is exposure to physiological birth. Because if you haven't seen it, and um, that was a lovely quote in from one of my uh, participants, you have to see it to believe it. So if you, you know, I, even when I was a student, we heard stories, which may not have been true, but we heard stories that some students were qualifying without looking after anyone without an epidural. Now, it's not that epidurals are bad, but if you've only seen birth in one way, then that is, that's a limitation of your experience and your exposure. And that's where, that's that system advocacy and activism that I um, feel committed to doing. You know, the ex- midwives need, and students, you know, we know that's a problem for students as well, the witnessing and participating and facilitating physiological processes. Um, you know, birth centres, hello, they need to be reopened. Home birth services need to be reinstated, um, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, individual midwives need to have a willingness to learn from those uh, midwives who can do this competently. But it is up to the systems to make sure that all needs are met. And at the moment, we know they're not. You know, it's hospital centric. It's very conveyor belt. It's not individualised. And, you know, we've been complaining about the conveyor belt for, you know, a long time. You know, the 70s activisms from the likes of Sheila Kinsinger came from all of, you know, it was a pushback against all of that. 
but it feels like we've, we've done another circle. We're in another cycle, um, which isn't too dissimilar to the 70s, I don't think, you know. But we can shift that, and it might be only on tiny micro levels. And I think it's really hard when we know how birth can be and how birthing women and people can feel. And it's not, and as you know in your work, it's not, this isn't about mode of birth over everything else. No. It's, about, it's about how the people are cared for. Mm-hmm. So some of the midwives in my study talked about spending whole antenatal nine months planning for this maybe quite complex out of guidelines birth. And then the women in their care getting to a certain point and did you know what? They felt so support, but I actually don't want to do that anymore. I feel differently now. Fine. Okay. So you want the cesarean or whatever it might be you know so I think that is the most crucial aspect in all of this is being supportive and not manipulative supportive pretending to support and not because we know that happens too it's got to be authentic but it's not about saying xyz mode of birth is more important than another it's how people feel it cared for um, across all of that from a population level, mode of birth is important. And yes, you'll hear me banging on about those statistics because it's a temperature check on the health of a nation. And yeah. that, you know, especially when you, you know, look at the WHO work, your peristat work, etc. we do need to know. But for individuals, um, they can feel empowered, elated, and like absolute goddesses for our want of a better word and having had forceps mm-hmm. uh, because they were so well supported and engaged with their care and treated with dignity and respect and kindness and compassion fully understanding that this was you know and not even fully understanding making the decision yeah this is right for me and my baby yes. so I think that the point of me ranting about that was to say a, just to the caveat that this isn't specific about mode of birth. To contradict that, we have to know how to optimise physiological processes. It's a, we, we have to, even for people having C-sections. Why do we have skin to skin? You know, how do we know skin to skin is really important? Well, it's because we're trying to understand physiological processes. Mm-hmm. Same with someone having an instrumental birth. Uh, not only skin to skin, but how do we, um, you know, support the perineum in uh, instrumental birth? Do we do? Uh, does an episiotomy always necessary? Actually, no. I've worked with obstetricians who who don't. Um, does it have to be in lithotomy? You know, heard from obstetricians who who have done um, upright forceps birth. So this bid for understanding, learning and facilitating physiology doesn't stop when things deviate out of the norm. And you know this, and you'll see it with your, your clients, where it maintains throughout. We have to understand all of it and then to help bring back a level of homeostasis after a deviation has occurred. So, yeah, that's what I would say about that. And in terms of midwives practice who are feeling so, and students who are feeling so, frustrated and demoralized what I can say is it won't feel big enough but the tiny things do make a difference within you know you might not be able to move where you work so you might work in a really really constraining environment but you can turn the lights down you can move the bed yes you can get the, the birth ball yeah. um, you know you can raise the bed so it's not an automatic let's lie down on the bed there's so many things that you can do even in those really tight restrictions um that's something i talk to my students about all the time what are those little things can you do Mm. um and to take the time to acknowledge when it is a little win Mm -hmm. because that's how you can have that reinforcing okay now i can make a difference even though it might not feel big enough of a difference to you i can tell you now having worked with women and birthing people far into the postnatal period because I used to run uh, breastfeeding support groups when you talk to people six months nine months 12 months, 15 months later um you start to see what a difference tiny little things make even if it's a dreadful experience they people will remember the student midwife who held their hand yep the midwife who spoke to them kind you know actually looked them in the face as you know bedlam's going on the rooms filled up with people they will remember that 
Um, so I think it is so easy to sink into this kind of overwhelming depression that everything's terrible. And I just get it. But we can reframe really small things. Um, we can still be, you know, don't lose the fight, don't lose the passion of things could be so much better and bigger and better. But actually, we can do really tiny, small things um, within our everyday practice that do make a difference. And that's something I was talking to my student uh, midwives the other day. When you're back out in community, go and take the opportunity, find the opportunity to go to mum and baby groups, uh, infant feeding groups, whatever they are that might still exist. I know that health visiting services have been decimated. You need to understand the impact of what we're doing in the interpartum period all the way through the longer term postnatal period. Because how women feel in that first couple of days is very different um, to how they might feel later on. Yeah. Um, so then you close the circle. But then that was going to inspire you that actually that small little thing that you thought was nothing actually was massive um, in the grand scheme of things, surprisingly. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can't agree more I mean, it, it, I mean everything you've just said is also things that I say when I go and lecture you know all these tiny things that students could be doing they seem tiny they have a huge impact and the other thing that um I, I lectured at Greenwich the other day um and I finished off by, by encouraging all of the student midwives to go and seek out the maternity voices partnership at their trust because they can attend committee meetings. They can go and suggest things that should be changed. You know, they can affect change at their trust. Just because they're a student doesn't mean you don't have the power to do things, to change things. And they're coming into that environment with a fresh set of eyes, you know, because a lot of people have been working in that environment for so long. They don't spot things that could possibly be changed. You know, the Maternity Voices Partnerships are fantastic for, for getting information from, from the people who are using the services and then and and I do think personally within my trust the little changes that I've affected have huge impact you know rolling out galaxy lights in every single room in in labor wards I mean it sounds like such a small thing but not everybody does a hypnobirthing course not everybody realizes the lighting's important so if we're proactively doing that for everybody so they don't need that knowledge we're supporting physiology you know, in the environment without it, without putting the onus on the birthing person to go and do a ton of research and understand physiology because the hospital and the midwives should be the ones that are the experts in that, that are promoting that from a, from a you know, again, from an organisational level. So it's, I, I completely agree with everything you said. Those little things, they I think they get trivialised and they get dismissed, but they're really, really important um, and it's not just students, obviously, it's, you know, fully qualified midwives as well, you know, switching the lights off, drawing the curtains, proactively suggesting a different birthing position, you know, you know all of these things are really, really important. So, yeah, I, I completely agree with what you said. And I think that is, I suppose, the biggest criminality, if you like, is, of course, pregnant women and people and their families expect us to be the experts in birth. And then we do things which counter the what we call basic sciences, but they're not basics. Your anatomy and physiology, neuroscience has got so much to say about this now. Psychology, because I don't differentiate, you know, it's physiology and psychology of birth and labor, or labor and birth, sorry. And no wonder people feel so let down because once maybe they didn't do any prep the first time. And I just don't think they should have to. I agree with yeah. you. We should already have facilitated that. We take people out of their neocortex and thinking brain. Just have why are birth centres got know all of this, and why isn't necessarily on a labour ward? But you managed to institute that change. The other thing I would say to that: so the galaxy lights so gorgeous, and I've got pictures I show um, to whoever I'm speaking to. What difference that makes for the midwives and obstetricians' physiology? Mm. These bright fluorescent lights and bells and buzzers going off is no good for us. How can we keep ourselves in check in terms of our stress hormones and adrenaline? Um, so I would love to do a study, and I'm not a physiologist, but I would love to do a study on the impact of what you've done on the staff, which then would have a benefit. And already, I know, you know, for staff, 
are nourished, the people in their care are going to be, we can, we can make a safe assumption they're going to be reasonably well nourished. So I think I would love to see the differences in terms of cortisol and things like that. I mean, just, we know, you know, there's something I do, I did with some student midwives a year or so back and did a visualization of a typical hospital environment and really, really emphasized the noise that, you know, imagine you're a laboring person arriving and it's noise, people rushing past, you know, everyone's like this, aren't they? Um, and, you know, rushing and looking stressed and got to get to the next place. How does it feel? And like you just said, if you've been working in that environment, for a lot of us, we are, you know, at home in a hospital setting. It's just things are the way that they are. But by taking these students through this um, visualisation, it was really amazing, the feedback. A, they got on board with it because I thought it was a bit of a wild card uh, activity to do. And then there, there's, oh, yeah, I hadn't, I'd forgotten that actually it's a really abrasive um environment you know it's a really unfriendly environment um you know whitewashed walls everywhere and dark and you know the smell you know forget how important the smell is yeah you know and all that kind of thing so yeah I think it's I think it's brilliant advice for students to go to MVP I'm going to steal that and credit you Evan because I'm going to take that back to my students so yeah, I think it's a great idea because those little changes do make a, a big difference, definitely. Mm. So where can people buy your book? Because I think it's really important that everyone buys a copy. <laughs> uh, thank you. I So I will put links, I'll send you links, but if you come to www.clairefeely.com, there is now a page for books. And so pre-order is on the 8th of February and you can find the link on my website with a 20% discount, which I think runs until end of March. I'll have to check that. Um, Amazon is stocking it. And I know we might have mixed feelings about Amazon, but for some of us, you might have a Kindle, prefer to download it on the Kindle. And of course the publisher's website. So that, that's the link that I've embedded from my website to the publisher. So you can order directly um, Waterstones and all the usual places. I feel like I've advertised the wrong, the wrong organization there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today. And um, I'm going to, I'm definitely going to rope you into recording more episodes if you're, if you're happy to, because I feel like there's other pieces of research that you've worked on that I need to share. So um, thank you so much for your time. And um, I hope everyone goes and buys a copy of your book. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for having me. And I would love to come back on. Thanks, Claire. The Better Birth Podcast and all of its content is for educational and informational purposes only. You should consult your midwife or your doctor for anything in relation to your own pregnancy and birth. The opinions and the views of the guests on the Better Birth Podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Better Birth or Erin Fung. Thank you.